Audio Astronauts. Two dudes pondering the depths of modern recording. There's an interesting technique where you take like PA speakers or if you had foldback speakers in the studio and then uh, playing those like super loud and then setting up some room mics and then smashing the crap out of those that I've seen people do like after the fact, it's almost like reamping your drums, if you will. Yeah, that's a technique. Reamping things through a PA, like take a whole kit of drums, reamp them out of a PA system into a room and then record that and then you get your room sound that you'd add. Exactly. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a, a lot of um tricky technical things where you would have to, you know, go in and probably time align to make sure that your phase is right. Uh, snares and toms and stuff like that, trying to align them to the overheads and, and that kind of stuff. Yes, or things that get, you know, reamped, you know, they shift a little bit. Yes. When I reamp things out or send things out through analog gear or print things, everything shifts a little bit. There's latency involved. Absolutely. You know, it takes time to, um, you know, decode that signal and send it out the A to D's or D to A's rather in this case, and then back in, you know, right. And depending on what circuit you go through, you know, that can, that can, and we're talking about milliseconds, but when you're talking about phase that matters, it does matter. And that's something that I've really been noticing, um, mm -hmm. because I've been doing a lot more, I mean, I say reamping, but that's, it's not really reamping. I mean, I guess it's re re preamping. <laughs> <laughs> I'll coin a new <laughs> phrase, re-preamping. Um, How does that work? How is it re if it's pre? There's two ways you can do what we're talking about here. Taking sounds that are in the box, even if you've recorded those through analog gear, and then sending those back out through other analog gear. So exactly. you, can, you can do what's called a hardware insert, which I have set up hardware inserts for Pro Tools, which is what I use, but you can do it with anything where you can effectively use your analog gear as a plug-in. This stuff is important because anytime you reamp anything, like you, you said it a minute ago, it's only milliseconds, but it does matter in terms of phase. And this is something that I've found working on things. Sometimes you get to this place where something is inexplainably wrong. <laughs> You're like, why does this sound like crap? It sounded awesome, you know, an hour and a half ago or yesterday or whatever, something is not right. And what I've been learning is trying to head off those type of problems really early on. Right. Like, well, here I've got, I've got the perfect solution for you, D. Okay. So remember when uh, we worked in a studio where uh, people would record the analog drums and then they would just go in and replace all of the drums with samples and then match that to time align that to a grid and then everything's perfect. No worries. <laughs> yes, that is, that is an approach that some take. It is an approach that quite a lot of people take, I think, you know? Yes. And the reason being is, and I think we can all agree on this is that as a recordist, as someone that's trying to effectively either make art and produce art in a way where other people can listen to it or help artists make their art and convey that art. 
what our job really to do is to convey the art. It's not to, you know, have a killer sample or the best recorded drum kit of all time. None of those things actually matter in terms of the art. It's, it's really more about making the, the piece of art as a whole, right? Well, we, we've sort of been having this conversation in my, in, you know, in my classes going to grad school, you know, we we're having these discussions like, so one of the classes I'm taking is this electronic sequencing thing. And so we, the whole uh, chapter was about, or module, I should say, was all about sampling, making your own samples, blah, blah, blah. And so a lot of people were, and we have these discussions with different people in the class about, you know, um, things like why would you record with a higher sample rate, you know, all these things. One of the, one of the people pointed out that a lot of it is not about necessarily making the art. A lot of it is about the expediency of it. If you know that um, you have a perfect drum kit and it can get you through to get on the radio and, you know, and that, and, and Rick Beato has an interesting video, uh, one of his earlier videos where he's talking about, um, Andy Wallace and his mix techniques and same snare sample he, on every uh, record you think is, I mean, yeah. Did you, yeah. And rage against the machine and all of those are all on the same. <laughs> yeah. So you saw that video too. Yeah. Using Andy Wallace as a good example. I think that everything we're doing as a recordist is just a toolkit, right? It's saying, okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. What can I do that a, I know how to do. I know how to do well. I know how to do fast enough so that I can, effectively capture what we're trying to capture. And then for me, because the, mm -hmm. you know, the way I work usually is more as an artist within that realm, right? I'm usually writing a guitar part and recording it at the same time or a bass part or a drum part or whatever. Right. The way I think about it is the same way. It's like, okay, how much of my brain power, my effort, how, how am I going to split myself to be an, a recording engineer, a producer, you know, somebody who's trying to make good decisions and then an artist who wants to get some piece of expression out. There's, you have to split yourself in all these ways. Yeah. And I think everybody's doing that, you know, in the producer or recording role, if you're a musician, musician too, if you're doing those things, you're having to split yourself and you're having to decide what's most important right now. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I think the answer is always the most important part is the art. And so it leads to what you're just talking about, which is that if it's easier for me to build a quick drum kit out of a bunch of samples to get, to get going on to this idea that I'm inspired by, I'm probably going to do that because it's the fastest I mean, I, way to do I it. I know you do that. You can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and you know, I, as much of a kind of purist snob as I may come off as I use those techniques as well. I don't just use the purest techniques. Is the audio astronauts theme song or is that you playing the drums or is that samples? That is Brad playing the drums and there are no samples. Well, actually it's Brad and I playing the drums because I, um, Brad played like the core part of it actually on a song that never got used or released and never became anything. So I just basically took a snippet of him playing a drum part. So it wasn't related to uh -huh. another song. And then I came in and played drums on top of it to add some, hi-hats and texture and, and aug stuff sure. to make it more interesting because it was a real simple beat. There wasn't a lot to it. Um, and, but, but all of the music around that though is actually, I think I used reason to program all that. So it's actually all programmed sounds and too, reason. Yeah. Um, and, 
But, you know, that's a great example and, and, and a great example, too, of how I work on almost everything. I was, I was about to lead you into that next question. So talk, talk, talk to me about, you know, specifically about drums. And, you know, so I've, I've seen you make a bunch of Quiet Hounds records. And, you know, I, I've watched the recording process. I've, I've been in the mixing process with you. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, what that looks like for people that are not me that have not seen that, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you know, mixing, because I know when we were uh, at glow in the dark, there was that big old bass drum. And so we sampled that and you've used that to augment the kick or the uh, kits in the past and stuff like that. I, I still so use that sample sort of... all the time, but to, just talking about my method, as far as recording, you know, drums goes, Typically, it is something along the lines of using pre-made samples that I've built, you know, or made, and maybe some other samples that I just think are cool that I've found or whatever, and starting rhythm stuff like that. That's usually how I work with an artist. Now, with Quiet Hounds, it's different. Brad will usually present, you know, the way we've been working on our new record um, that we're actually working on now, He's he's been recording a bunch of beats and loops in his house, live stuff with one right. microphone so they're mono but then we just have a, a folder where we you know eric goes in and he pulls the beats that he thinks are cool out and then he drops those into garage band or logic or whatever he's using and he plays over that <laughs> so like this one right. mono you know let's like, say so like a usb mic thing i think that brad uses you know so it kind of it morphs as it goes so then when i get it back i usually kind of go in and start building my version of of fake drums around to kind of right. make it sound better and adding stuff and you know, I have this affliction where I can't not make something sound like a finished, you know, I need it to sound like a finished record while I'm working on it so that I can be inspired by it. That's, I was, that's exactly what I was going to ask. Is that about an inspiration? Yeah, it is, you know, and it's, it's good and bad. It's good because I have the ability to do that, but it's also bad because it hampers my it hampers that other side, which is like, Hey, let's just, let's just record some parts. Let's just get some, some inspiration right off the bat where I'll be like, man, this sounds like crap. I'm not inspired by this. Like I need to make it sound <laughs> like something to, to get inspired by it. So it works because I'm able to spend all that time on my own and I'm not really, you know, I'm not necessarily having to charge people for that time. That's my own bullshit that I, I just eat the cost on. <laughs> we were talking about, you know, uh, Stephen King last, last week and, uh, that kind of writing through stuff as opposed to like copy editing yourself before you've finished. So I, I wonder if does that, that doesn't impede the progress for you. Does it? It doesn't, no, it definitely doesn't impede the progress. It's actually become a way of my progression, right? It's like, how do I progress? Here's how make this sound so I good, make it sound good that I, then, that I find something else that goes in that mix. Right. And this is a really silly way to work as a musician, maybe, but you know, I would love to hear from people if this is a way they work too, because you know, maybe I'm not unique at all. Maybe this is just a path I found, but millions of other people found too, which is you're basically building the final product as you go, right? You're, you have a vision for this, this painting and you're trying to make it as finished and composed and complete as possible as you work. Mm -hmm. uh, my girlfriend, Sarah is a painter and she sure. hates, she absolutely despises the ugly phase as she calls it, which is, you know, what she's is, got, she's got shapes and, and everything kind of roughed in on the canvas or the wood or whatever she's painting on. 
but it's not complete. It doesn't have detail. It doesn't have finesse. It doesn't have the stuff that we all respond to as beautiful or amazing technique. So when it's in that middle stage, she calls it the ugly stage. She hates it. And she's like, I'm a terrible painter. It's like, yeah, but you're just in a stage where you haven't gotten it to a place where it looks polished and produced. And so I think that same thing applies to music with me. And I think a lot of other people is that we're constantly looking for the vision we're, we, we, you know, it's not fun to spend your time looking at something that's not beautiful, you know, just looking at this kind of ugly, unfinished painting or an ugly, unfinished song. It's like, let me get it sounding like something that's finished. Uh, the challenge of that for me has been when I get it to this kind of finished looking stage at every stage, how do you then mix that song? Do you even need to mix that song? How much work goes into the mix? You know, and so this is all shit I'm still figuring out. In my observation of the Quiet Hounds records being made, it uh, there's a long time between the the tracking and then the the finished product. That's true, but most of that time is usually me, you know, digging for gold. If you have all the time in the world and you don't have a clock and you don't have, you know, somebody, uh, somebody looking at you going, okay, you know, this has to be out in a certain date, um, you know, or we're out of money. And so you need to stop. Like, how do you get a piece of art to that stage when you're inherently a perfectionist? Like I know you are, how do you, how do you find, do you just finally give up or, or, and say, I've, I've, you know, I've spent, all the time I, I have to give on this and it's as good as I can get it right now. And it just has to go out the door. Or do you feel like you, you get something to that stage where you're a hundred percent, you know, happy with it a hundred percent. I think that this is a really complicated question because <laughs> yeah, as I have gotten better at engineering, better at mixing, better at producing better in every way, as I've grown, that has gotten more difficult because I follow this, um, you call it a compass or something. I have an internal compass for whatever vision that I'm working on. And I just know, I don't, I don't know how to say this any other way. I just know when it's right. Yeah. The more skills you have, the more tools you have, the more understanding you have of why something is good or bad, the more difficult that job becomes especially if you're introducing comparative listening, which is something that you and I've talked about back in sure. the past. I don't do this much. And this is why I'm able to complete work. I don't compare my work or the work that I'm doing to other work. Mm -hmm. I only compare it to that compass that I have that says, yes, this is right. And that's why I'm able to finish work. And a lot of times a deadline does incorporate into that where it's like, you know, I could definitely make this better, but this is what we're going to go with. And I, I always feel better about the fact that something got finished and is out and is then we're all learning from and all growing from than if I were to be clingy and, and stuck on this idea that what are people going to think if I didn't get this perfect, right? Like yeah. you can't be paralyzed by those types of um, emotional attachments to it as a producer or an artist, really, you, you have to get the stuff out. So. Well, I think you're in a, in an interesting situation where you're the producer, engineer, and musician in your own band. And so, you know, doing work for clients, uh, 
I think there's there has to be a different mentality than you know your own own band. It just seems like that's that's a hard place for you to be in to uh, to let go of that piece of work or get it to that place that you're talking about. Like you see in your mind's eye, this thing needs to be because you could work on it forever. Yeah, that's so, true. And you know, when I listen, so how do you finally get to that place where you're like, this is it. When I listen back to any record that I've made, all I hear, I mean, n- not all I hear, I don't want to say it that way. Cause that will be too extreme, but I do often hear all of the things that I could do better, you know? Oh. And that, that's, but that's part it, of, that's, the, it's growing. Yeah, that's, that's growing. Part of growing as a producer and engineer. Is it do you find that it's something that sticks out in the mix or is it something in the instrumentation or the parts that were written or is it some combination of all of those things? Yeah, it's definitely a combination a combination of everything. Um and I think that is why that reflection of old stuff and, and learning and, and adapting as you grow and get better is why it gets so much more complicated to finish work in a satisfying way because you know, like I know, or, or in some cases, for instance, there's this one song I did and man, I just nailed these things. Why the fuck can I nail that on this song? <laughs> well, the rhythm's different. The player's different. You know, all of the, there's so many nuances, so many little tiny factors in every single mix that you do, it's always different. And I'm going to use this and you're going to hear me use this often, uh, comparison to meditation and yoga, but what you learn with, uh, Vipassana, um, meditation, which is about breathing. Every single breath is different. You never take a breath in this life that is the same. So if you want to, if you want to add a little bit of, you know, philosophical to this, you shouldn't be chasing the perfect, you know, thing. And I think this is why people like you and I are at odds to some degree with the technological advances of recording and how music is made today, because it actually goes against this concept, which is everything in the world is living, breathing, dying, changing at all times. It's never stagnant. And the idea of making something exactly perfect, a perfect snare drum beat that never changes all the way through the song actually goes against the concept of existence of life at all. Right. So fundamentally that kind of shit enters my mind when I'm working on music, you know, and, and putting drums on a grid, not just replacing the sample, but you know, the pushing and pulling of, you know, you you and I've looked at drums on the grid and talked about how some people play behind the beat. Some people play in front of the beat and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, people putting things on the grid so that it's perfect is not human. And sometimes, sometimes it's necessary, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I want to talk about this for a minute because this is something that I find myself, I don't want to say bogged down, but sometimes I do get bogged down in, which is the feel of the drummer is Mm -hmm. fundamental. If you're, you know, it's, it's fundamental in all music. The sound of the room and the feel of the drummer is like one of the most important characters on a record to me. Obviously records that don't have that real feeling on either one of those are a whole other beast. But just talking about a drummer with a feel that's not perfect. I mean, 
Brad, who plays on almost everything that I do, is one of the, in my opinion, greatest drummers I've ever heard. He just, there's just something about how he feels what he's doing that is right. It's undeniable, unexplainable. But, you know, he plays ahead of the grid. He just doesn't play on the grid. He's always ahead of the click track. Always. You know, <laughs> which in one way is simple because I that I know I can actually just slide his whole take back a little bit if I want uh -huh. him to lay back, you know? It's right. But, you know, what he and I have been doing much more cuz he's been drumming a lot lately in the new studio. We're, we're learning how to use the room and all this is I'm Great. getting a lot more <laughs> aware of how do I get him in the mindset to play the way I want this song to feel, right? Because I know how his natural state is, and I know how that but how feels. Do you, do you do that by with words, or do you, you do that with listening to other other music, or both? So we okay. actually, dude, for the first time, we referenced a track in a session. I don't. I, this sounds so crazy for me to say this, but I've never, I never have done this. But I actually pulled up a song in a session uh -huh. and said, listen to this feel. And we listened okay. to the feel and then we kind of adapted the part to the feel and it worked amazingly. And I used it as a tool for communication, not as a tool to rip someone off, not as a tool to emulate them, but as a tool of communication, which was like, you know, we were having a dialogue about it, but that example allowed us to get there so much faster, right? Instead of him having to work through a bunch of takes and stuff like that example got him there. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the show. Just wanted to give you a reminder to check out Audio Astronauts on Instagram. And you can also follow Matt and myself. I'm at Magnetic Recording and Matt is at Matt Rolls ATL. All right, enjoy our conversation on Nirvana. Today is the... Sad anniversary. It's a right? sad anniversary, but it's the day that um, Kurt Cobain was found in his apartment 27 years ago. He was 27 when he shot himself. And there's there's still a controversy about his passing. I saw a documentary recently on Netflix where um, they were interviewing people, and it's there's yeah. I, I don't, I'm not going to get into the conspiracy theory because I don't know, you know, I don't have anything to back up any evidence of no, anything. No, no, no. I just think it's interesting that they yeah. still don't know. But, but I, I will say know, this, that I, I know, I know this to be true. What's that? Shitloads of drugs and depression <laughs> do not, not end, they don't, they do not take just, you somewhere positive. You're leaving out one factor, money. All of a sudden, they 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 had a hit record, and uh, money was involved. And so, you know, usually when there's a lot of money involved, people tend to come out of the woodworks and surround themselves. And you know, you're not really sure what their true intentions are. And you know, typically they don't lead you in a good direction. And I think that was the, you know, from what I understand from reading and um, documentaries and things, that he wasn't surrounding himself with good people. Yeah, and. Lots of drugs and depression don't lead you to making good decisions like surrounding yourself with good people. You know, that's <laughs> well, that's true. Good I think, point. um, you know, I, but I definitely get what you're saying because I don't know that I've ever actually, I wasn't able to put my finger on this when I was a teenager, but the reason I was drawn to Kurt Cobain was some feeling, some kinship, some understanding of who the person was 
And Mm -hmm. I, you know, and I think even now when I reflect on him as a person, I do feel what you're talking about, which is kind of this deep empathy for us, for a soul that was, you know, just cornered and, you know, leached onto and, you know, and all of, all of that kind of heavy stuff, like, you know, what he chose to do to try to escape it, whether, you know, it was drugs or, you know, self-expression or whatever, obviously it led to some great music that literally changed, you know, our culture. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, I always kind of connected with something much deeper in there. And I think, you know, I haven't really spent time listening to to Nirvana since I was, you know, probably even before, before I got into the Beatles, you know, like around 18 or 19 or 20, Mm-hmm. It was really before that when I was really, you know, Nirvana was basically it for me. I mean, it was definitely the reason why everything started for me, that band, for sure. Um, and what was your first, well, what was the first exposure to, to Nirvana? Was it Nevermind? It was Nevermind. Or... And um, I think Nevermind and Bleach kind of at the same time, because it was around the time when, when, I mean, CD players may have been out a little before this, but, you know, people actually owning like a CD player boombox and that kind of stuff wasn't really a thing when I was like probably eight, nine or 10. And, and mm-hmm. once it kind of started to happen, I remember my sister bought me a CD player and she gave me a bunch of CDs. And one of them was Nevermind. I think Bleach was in there also. So it was those two records. But I I think that was probably around, it had to have been around 94 when she gave me those things. Um, She was in college, Mm -hmm. you know, but I was, in 1994, I was 12 years old. So, you know, Kurt Cobain had already died. He either died after I started listening to his music, and I just didn't or know right. about it because I wasn't privy to like news media and that kind of stuff. Or he was already dead when I started listening to his music. Honestly, it could have been that much after. Yeah. Cause I was, I was in college and one of the things I, you know, I graduated in high school in 1990 and went off to college. And so one of the things I asked for um, as a graduation present was a, a, a CD player, uh-huh. you know, stereo thing. And so they were definitely out, at that time, they were still a little bit more rare. It was a nice gift. Um, but we, you know, there were so many good records that came out between 90 and 94. Um, yeah, for real. You know, I definitely had the Nevermind CD right when it came out. And my friends um, that I was in a band with in college, they were all into the whole grunge thing, uh, you know. And <laughs> we all wore flannel and Doc Martens and, you know, the whole thing. You know, I had hair down to my back but they turned me on to bleach before nevermind came out Mm -hmm. and so it's a very different sounding record and so i know we want to talk about the the anniversary and his impact and stuff but bringing it back around to some recording stuff like uh and andy wallace specifically was brought into you know butch vig was the producer of nevermind and so they went to smart studio in in madison wisconsin to record nevermind and there's an interesting like classic albums you know that series yeah um and so there's an interesting piece about nevermind um and butch vig and he like breaks down the uh double tracking vocals and stuff like that that he did it's really interesting um 
but anyway, it's a very, but then Andy Wallace was brought in by, um, I think that record is on Geffen. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, but anyway, that was a very new company. And so they didn't, you know, they wanted it to sound more radio friendly. So Andy Wallace was brought in to make it radio friendly. And so uh, I've got this box set that I think uh, I loaned you one time and that's got the different mixes on it. And, and also the, um, the Steve Albini uh, produced in utero, which is the follow-up to Nevermind. And somebody was brought in to remix that. Yeah, you did. Let me borrow that. For was a that while. Andy Wallace too? I'm I not sure. Remember. I'm not sure who did the mix on that, but, but the, um, the versions that Steve Albini mixed, they really are not very different from the final mixes. The final mixes, I, I can tell you, I listened to both right before we started this podcast, actually. Oh, um, well, there you go. <laughs> the difference is stereo widening. I knew, I knew, I knew you did that. <laughs> there is something, they, there's some stereo widening that happens in the mix that everyone knows mm -hmm. compared to the Steve Albini, like, you know, mixes that, went to a mixer but that's about it man i mean steve albini's mix sounds really good it's just a little bit less wide you know mm -hmm. it, 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 a little bit less you know commercial kind of sounding it sounds you know more true but but that mix translates though you get steve albini's recording techniques the sound actually mm -hmm. i do want to talk about this because Nevermind was definitely the record that was transformative to, I think, everyone, you know, to the, to the culture, you know, Nevermind I mean, you was probably name every track on that record. Yeah. You know? it, the song, how many radio hits were on that right. one record? Yeah. Um, Come as you are in bloom lithium uh, smells like teen spirit yeah, smells like teen spirit. Of course. Yeah. There's drain you <laughs> and a, and around that time, uh, you, I don't know, you said you were like 12 when he died. So anyway, yeah. around that time we would go to, uh, guitar stores and stuff. And that's all anybody was playing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there you go. That's reason enough to want to off yourself. It, it wasn't stairway to heaven anymore. Suddenly it was replaced by, yeah. uh, that, and, and Metallica too. The black album came out around yeah. that time too. That's a great album too. That's a great album. <laughs> yeah. I want to say this because you, because you brought up the stairway to heaven thing. There's something about Led Zeppelin's records and Floyd records. Those, you know, the big three for me are Floyd Zeppelin and the Beatles, you know, and yeah, I, yeah. there's other bands that I'm not including in this. Those three bands to me created perfection, like the way the records sounded, the way they were recorded, the way they were mixed, the way their songs were written, the way they're everything about those three bands. They made things that are, to me, untouchable pieces of art where other bands did some things well, but missed the mark in other ways. The stones, I don't think had all those things. I think they had mm -hmm. some of them sometimes and some of them other times, but not all of them all the time. The Beatles, I'm just, Zeppelin and Floyd. Just did. So inconsistent. Yeah. But the stones are so inconsistent to me. What I wanted to say was, is that as great as nevermind is, mm -hmm. When I listened to In Utero today, fresh, and I haven't listened to it in a really long time, it really reminded me of what a great producer brings to a band. And in this case with Steve Albini, this is an even more interesting thought because I know his approach. I've heard him speak and about his approach. He doesn't consider himself a producer. He doesn't. He does not 
insert his opinion into the art. He, 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 he will, right. if he really feels super strongly, he'll say something, but nine times out of 10, he wants the artist to be the artist and he wants to accurately capture the art. Right. Yeah. But again, the right producer for the right artist creates magic. And in this case in utero, when it, when that, when the songs on that record play, I feel the personalities of the band members. I hear what they're trying to say, what they mean, what they're trying to do, how they feel. And it's because the way it's captured allows me to do that. Okay. And I know that there, there are records that, that sound like garbage that I, that I still like that, that the art, you know, transcends the shitty recordings that does happen sometimes. But when I played in utero today, I was like, yeah, the reason this is so perfect is because it reminds me of like a Zeppelin record and not, not because they recorded like Zeppelin, but because the recording and the production and the songs and the players and the sounds they chose and the textures, everything is right. That you can't say that for many things. No, you can say a producer did a great job in spite of, you can say a band is so great and the producer ruined it or the mastering engineer, blah, 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 <laughs> blah. And I'm sure all those conversations have been had about Nirvana and utero, but as one person's opinion, listening to it pretty fresh, you know, in, in later life, it really does sound right to me. You know, it sounds I right. Back and, I need to go back and listen to it with fresh ears. It's been so so long, you know, I, I mean, truthfully, I kind of got burnt on Nirvana. Um, everybody did. Yeah. Everybody. I mean, did. it was just on the radio so much. Um, so I had to kind of step away from it. So it'd be interesting. You know, I'm glad that you did that exercise. It'd be interesting for me to go back and listen to that again and, and kind of think about, yeah, there's a few observations that I took away from the listen. I was trying to just think of some, you know, the connection between the recording and the production not interfering with what I was getting, right? I was getting the purity of the songs. Another thing that really struck me, you know, that record is so like loose and chaotic and bombastic and loud, you know, that's how I would think of it. Mm -hmm. But when I listened to it, I was like, back then, loud grungy guitars were nothing like they are today we've created this wall of distortion in today's rock that is unlistenable i cannot palate it i can't handle it no i know you know th this <laughs> like 16 different tracks of the same guitar take through every type of rectifier you can imagine you know this it's an affliction that that rock music underwent after nirvana then you know the the, the 2000s on I mean, I don't know if you're a fan or not, but, um, you know, uh, you could say that Smashing Pumpkins and specifically Siamese Dream uh, ruined rock guitar for everybody because it had to be so layered to, to seem uh, super huge. And, you know, there's a lot of science. Butch Vig talks about how, you know, you know about frequency masking. And so when you have eight different guitars on top of each other, you have to kind of be very um, cognizant of where those live uh, in the frequency spectrum across the stereo field, you know, the whole, the whole thing. But I think really those layer guitars started with that. And then 
uh, you know, so that was 93, I want to say. And so then by the time you get into the 2000s, there's a whole era of kind of this pop punk thing where that just gets done on steroids and it's not even like thoughtful anymore. Totally. And I think the Smashing Pumpkins are a part of the equation. I think Nirvana is a, is probably the main component of where, you know, this, the rock really went downhill with people trying to rip off those bands, rip off the grunge sound. Well, Pearl, Pearl Jam too. Yeah. I mean, it was, any of those, you know, early bands. So you take, so you take Smashing Pumpkins guitars, uh, Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell, and don't forget Soundgarden came out at this yeah. time too. So uh, Bad Motorfinger came out right around, you know, between, you know, basically we're, we're talking about the era between 90 and 94, which is basically when I went to college, it was interesting that all of these records kind of came out and then Lollapalooza happened. So, oh yeah, we, we had Jane's Addiction. Um, anyway, there were a lot of good bands in, the, in that time, but I think, oh, Alice in Chains. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people out of Seattle, of course. At that time, we had to figure, we had to listen to music through sort of the Rolling Stone. The, you know, we didn't have Pitchfork magazine or, or what, wherever you get your music journalism now. Music journalists will jump from scene to scene to scene. And so where I grew up, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, was supposed to be like the next Seattle that happened after Seattle. So everybody went out to Seattle, everybody moved out to Seattle. It sounded like Seattle you know, all of that sub pop records. And then, you know, and then that sort of fad dies away and they go find, try to find something else. And, um, and it just never materialized in Chapel Hill. We got uh super chunk out of that and merge records, which is uh, Mac and Laura from, um, from super chuck. And there's a, there's a really good book about the history of merge records. I urge people to check out, but um Anyway, it's interesting having this conversation about the grunge, the grunge rock kind of scene, but it, you know, it all stems from this kind of weird anniversary of, of Cobain dying. And, um, you know, you and I are, uh, you know, I'm older than you. So I experienced all of that, the, the grunge music scene, his death, all of that in a kind of very different way. I'm, I think I'm closer to Kurt's age. I'm definitely closer to Kurt's age than you are. He was older than me. I think he was. He would be. He would be 54, right now. Okay. Because he it was 27 years ago when he died, and and he was 27, so 54. So he'd be like my older brother, sort of thing. Yeah. Could you imagine Kurt Cobain in this world with things like American Idol? I don't think he'd hand, be able to handle it. I think. Not even handle it, though, but like I, I think that our culture would not accept him. I think that they'd be like, I don't think he would make it. Like if he would not been successful then, if he was now, you know. Oh, they definitely wouldn't. They wouldn't. He doesn't really sing in key, you know, like even on, even on, you know, like in utero, I was listening to him like, he's all heart. He's all soul. He's all real. He's, he's none of this stuff that we've grown to like um look up to here's the fundamental philosophical question i mean what is what is music what is it for why 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 do we well actually why is it taking a back seat in our modern culture i think it's it may be it, this may answer itself you know because i think that 
music is about communicating emotion, thoughts, feelings, you know, from one person to another. I write the song about how I'm feeling today and you listen to that song and you can relate. And so, um, you know, and, and Kirk's definitely that if you, if you dig into the lyrics, you know, he was deeply introverted and, um, you know, struggled with a lot of things in his life. And so then you just add fame on top of that and money. And so, you know, it was, it, he was kind of destined to, to flame out in some ways. Also destined to galvanize the generation. I certainly felt the way that he felt it. It spoke to my generation. Thanks for listening, guys. And if you have made it this far, you could go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review, and that'd be amazing. Uh, also, you can email us at audioastronauts at gmail.com with any thoughts or questions about topics we've discussed, and maybe we'll bring those up on another episode. All right, guys, have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon.